صلى عليك الله يا حمد نور المنازل يا محمد يا من خلق من نور السلام عليكم As I begin my own spiritual journey, I want to hear from those who have taken this path before me. This podcast focuses on them and listening to their stories, uninterrupted. My name is Hiba Masood, and I invite you to reflect on the trajectories of their lives and the guidance and blessings provided by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala along that journey. Sheikh Yusuf Welch has a fascinating family history. He is part African-American, British, and Costa Rican, but has Inca, Cherokee, Nicaraguan, and Irish blood as well. His journey begins in Trenton, New Jersey, where he was a young pianist and professional pool player before being introduced to Islam by his brother. His pursuit of Islamic knowledge took him from the Dar al-Ulum Madrasa in Queens, New York, to Dar al-Mustafa in Tarim, Yemen, and finally to Canada. I first met Sheikh Yusuf while he was teaching a summer intensive program at Seeker's Guidance in Toronto. Who knew his journey would intersect with so many of my own teachers? It's truly amazing to see how Allah SWT weaves these journeys together. In this episode, Sheikh Yusuf discusses the lack of community in classes as a new convert and how this struggle impacted him, something familiar for many of our new Muslim brothers and sisters. He also talks about teaching in Mexico and the need for Spanish speakers and Dawah work. Listen in to all the beautiful stories within his story. So my family is extremely mixed. I have a short answer and a long answer to where I'm from. Uh, the short answer is I'm half, half African-American, half Costa Rican. The long answer is that my father is... Uh, his father is African-American. His mother is British. Uh, she's from Ipswich. She's about two hours from London. And she's still, she's been in America for about 30, 40 years, and she still has an accent. So we asked her, like, how, do you, how did you keep your accent this whole time? She said, I watch EastEnders every week. <laughs> so uh, her, my, my grandmother's father is actually Irish. Right, so the story continues like a saga, right? So that's my father's side, or my my father's mother's side. His father is African American, and my father actually traced the lineage of my grandfather's, uh, his father's side back to 1805, right? And we have the census of 1805 with the signature of Arthur Welch, my great my fifth, sixth grand grandfather. Uh, who was written as free Negro, right? He was not a slave, uh, right? but the records prior to that, they go back to West Africa, but the, the records were, the record house burned down and sometime in the 1900s. So we've kind of hit a stumbling block there. But, but, bo- but my father's father's side goes back to the Cherokee Native Americans, right? Of, um, which are mainly around the southeast uh, United States. My mother's side, my mother's Costa Rican. Uh, she was born and raised in Costa Rica. She came to America when she was seven. Uh, 
her father is Nicaraguan, right? and and my mother's side goes back to the Inca Native Americans, right? which is mostly settled in uh, Central America. So that's that's the long version. Marshall, that's a really rich family history. What was your family like growing up, and what was it like growing up in Trenton? Alhamdulillah. So I grew up in in Trenton, New Jersey, which is kind of right now it's a really bad neighborhood. A lot of crime, a lot of violence. I grew up in a partially religious environment. My my mother's side, uh, they're very Catholic. Like, take Catholic plus another twenty percent more Catholic. Like, especially my grandmother, she lived with us. She was extremely Catholic. She used to tell us that if you ever lose something, right, just pray to Saint Peter and you'll find it. <laughs> and she would. So, um, my father's side was not that religious, but maybe somewhat. Uh, but I think because of my father and my mother being together, my father was a bit more religious at that time. Right, so we used to go to church on Sundays, and so that environment was there. And I have I'm the, the youngest of three uh, brothers, so. But so we lived just outside of the city part of Trenton, so and which was a very bad neighborhood, a lot of gangs, a lot of drugs. But I, as being the youngest one, I was kind of protected from that. So, so my my story actually starts from there, where once my parents split up in 1993, I believe I was seven years old. That. Everyone was given a choice who they wanted to live with. Either my mother's side, my mother and my grandmother, they moved to another place, or with my father. So I, I stayed with my father because I was the youngest, and he was more able to take care of me. My brothers, they went with my mother. And so I kind of detached from that religious side for a while. Uh, and it wasn't until about eighth grade or so a few years later that I, I went back to live with my mother for about six months and I think that in that six months my mother had become born-again Christian so she had converted in some some way or some form from from Catholicism to this more Baptist type uh, understanding of Christianity so in that six months when I was living with my mother it became a very religious environment. I used to voluntarily go with her to church, to church multiple times per week. I would go with her to like prayer sessions, and they have these things called hands-on sessions, where they would go and they would put their hands on people and pray on and pray on them. And, and it was really for that at that time. Right in retrospect, it was very strange. Just thinking about all of that, but at that time it was really profound for me because, like, I, I didn't have that access to religion, to the religiousness, the spiritual side, and she was very spiritual. Like, I would I would say that they were they were more of like the Sufi style of Christianity, and they had this thing where they would speak in tongues. Where they would just just start speaking just blabbering words and sounds and it didn't really make any sense and apparently they're supposed to like 
there's people who can translate what you're saying and like the spirit is speaking through you or I used to do that with her as well and she used to listen to these like Christian nasheeds all the time and I would listen with her and so, so after that I went back to live with my father but I remember at that time that there were certain stages throughout my life that I asked myself a question and those questions just they struck a chord and they never really left until I got the answer so one of the questions was are we worshiping Jesus or are we worshiping God are, or are they the same right, because they're said to be the same and this and this was a, a really big confusion for me and they're said to be the same but they're spoken as completely different beings right and sometimes they're spoken in the same sentence right as two different beings and sometimes they're talking about Jesus praying to God and it was really like as even as like an eight-year-old I was very confused right so but that's kind of how it started my, my relationship to religion spirituality and these things but I mean, the process continues after I go back with my father then it becomes a huge detachment from religion in general and just becomes I mean, regular day-to-day -day American life can you talk about your conversion story what brought you to Islam so after being with my father uh, I spent the, the rest of my middle school and and then into high school just being a normal American kid playing sports, uh, hanging out with friends outside in the neighborhood, riding bicycles. Right? Then when, just before I went into high school, uh, I started to play piano. And my father used to, and he would, and this is the way my father was always was, and may Allah bless him for it. And he would always open doors, show me that there are other things that you could do hobbies, right, sports, he would, and he would teach me the beginnings of everything and then he let me choose for myself, right, so like for instance basketball, he showed me how to, how to shoot a proper jump shot and then he let me be, and then if I wanted to play more, he would continue, right, same thing with football, he showed me how to throw a spiral, right, baseball, he showed me how to catch properly, right, and, and he did that with everything, and one of them was music, so he, he himself doesn't play any instrument. So he bought me this little keyboard, right? And this had this computer program with it. And this is huge for like for for the early, for the late nineties, like a computer program right, to learn piano. So I would play and play. So when I became just before I went to high school I started taking professional lessons in piano and I really liked it, but me as a, an introvert they wanted me to do a recital so that was it as soon as you asked me to do a recital i quit <laughs> but then i started to play uh, a different sport uh, called pool or usually called billiards and my father he showed me how to hold the stick and so once i saw that game that was it and i, I was always a very one-sided person that if i found something i loved i gave it 110%. I was never really good at moderation. Right, so from 14 years old, and the story continues till about 22, I played pool every day for about at least 12 hours a day, nonstop. Right, 
I would go to high school. I would sit there thinking about pool, drawing different layouts of the of the how the game could be played out on the table, right? I had a little pool ball on my keychain, and I would use that during class. Right? I was completely, as they say, majdoop, just engrossed in the idea of pool. So I would immediately leave from school and and walk straight to the pool. And sometimes I even devised plans of how I can get off at a different stop closer to the pool. One time I actually tried to pull, bring my pool stick to the school and then they, security came to me. It looks really a lot like a shotgun. <laughs> right, so I never did that again. Right, but I was completely engrossed in pool. Right, so and I would study, I would watch videotapes and I would take notes, I would read books, I would and I had and I remember my notebook that I would write all my notes and I would draw the I would draw the pool table, all the pockets and then different positions where the balls could be and all different ways to, to shoot to the sequence of how to finish the game. And I remember the title of that book was called Misspent Youth. I titled it myself. It's almost as if inwardly I knew what was wrong. Right, so the game I really enjoyed the game and it was really I think it was a good thing for me. But it slowed as I became good and and that was quite fast actually. It was like a natural talent for it. Uh, I started to play tournaments and I started then all of a sudden I started to go to the pool hall at, uh, at different times of the night. I would stay until nighttime. And once you stay till nighttime, I mean, they say the freaks come out at night, right? The, the crowd, the environment was different. And so now I'm starting to meet people who are drug dealers. I've met people who are alcoholics, people who are drug addicts, people who have severe gambling problems. And, and these were people who are like friends almost. I mean, some of them saw me as a dollar sign, uh, as a means of making money. And others, they didn't like me because I was a bit cocky. <laughs> so they were like determined to beat me, which they didn't do. <laughs> so, I, and that, at that point, from 14 and on, I started to see the, the world that I was hidden from when I was young. Because my brothers were exposed to that because they they were older they got they had more freedom they get to go into the hood and to other other areas where i was always protected up until that point so now i'm seeing all these things but i'm seeing it in a really ugly fashion and i think many people who are exposed to these things are exposed to some glamorized or like some adorned version of it and they kind of they incline toward it because of that, either through music or through music videos and where they're flaunting all of these things. But I was exposed to the very ugly side of it. And people with severe alcohol problems, severe uh, drug problems, severe gambling. I met one guy, he won $25,000 on a lottery ticket and he, would, and he was in debt five days later. So, <laughs> I mean, to that extent. So from there, what happened is I became really good at pool. And I started to play like professional tournaments or pro-am tournaments, uh, travel all throughout the East Coast, uh, tri-state area. And I was still only about 18 or so at that time. Uh, 
and this continued up until I was about 21, where pool was no longer a passion. It became a job, right? And, and when I was 19, I went to, I flew to Minnesota to meet a guy I've never met in my entire life, but he was, uh, he was considered one of the world-renowned pool players. So I joined him and we'd had a, a, a road trip for a month and a half. So we drove, I flew to Minnesota and we drove back from Minnesota all the way back to New Jersey and stopped at every pool hall in the way. Right? So that was a huge eye-opener as well because that person had a severe gambling problem. Right? In casinos, he would go and lose all the money and then win it all back in pool and then lose it all again in casinos. And, and so that, that was... And all of this is slowly leading up to me not liking the environment. So when I was around 20, I know this is like a long story for a very short answer. You know, when people ask me how I became Muslim, I have three sets of answers. I have the short version, right? Because somebody's like, like you're, you're walking out the door, they meet you in the doorway and say, oh, how'd you become Muslim? Like, you really want me to start this? So I have a short answer, I have like a medium answer, and I have a, the real answer, the long answer. So this is the long one. All right, so, so around 20 or, 20 or so, uh, I met a person named, uh, let's not name him, but he was a professional piano player. And he absolutely loved pool. Right? And he said to me, he said, look, I'll teach you how to play piano. Right? If you don't, if you teach me how to play pool, right? And at that point, I my heart started to, I loved the game of pool, but I it felt like a job, right? So I was slowly starting to detach from from that. So we started to hang out a lot, and I would teach him much more pool than he would teach me piano. But when he would teach me piano, he would just give me homework, like things to practice and. And I would practice them all night long. So that love that I originally had for piano came back. So and I, I stayed with him for about, well, we actually moved in together right, for about a year. And it was interesting because the life of a musician is just as bad. <laughs> After that, I ended up slowly detaching from him and from other friends that I had. And I started to realize, like, I can't live like this anymore, right? And just the environment, everything was just bearing down on me. And so I started to slowly detach from people, right? Even in pool itself, I, I still played pool. I worked at a pool hall part-time, and I just concentrated on music. I just played my own music. I had uh, some high school friends that... We started a band. Right? At this time, I had a huge afro, right? tie-dye t-shirts, and it was a really different person. It's different to me, just in retrospect. Like, who are you? Kind of. Right. So we we had a we had a band, and I think we all had this affinity together because we were all lost, and we were all looking for this. But even then, we still, right? it's still that musician type environment where you still have these things that are detrimental to the soul right and i remember one specific song that 
that I still remember the lyrics till today was the definition of our life at that time. Right? I'm not going to mention who the artist is. Whoever knows it would know it immediately as soon as I say the words. So It's a British band. They say, Wasting away the moments that make up the dull day. Fritter and waste the hours in an offhand way. Sitting around on a piece of ground in my hometown, waiting for someone or something to show me the way. Right, so that's what we were doing. We were just sit around all day long, right? make songs once in a while. So it was like 10% of productivity and 90% of just wasting time. Right? And, and that last line, waiting for someone or something to show me the way. Because right, it, it was all of us were looking for that escape not like an escape from that lifestyle but really an escape from this kind of cage of not knowing what's going on in the big picture and so i started to slowly detach from everyone and then i found out that my brother he was also doing music but it's a slightly different style he used to make uh, drum beats for rap songs and he would he would make them into CDs and then sell them to to rappers, right? So it's like it's just the the music part in the back with no lyrics, and he would sell them to rappers to put lyrics on top of them. So he found out that I play piano, and because this time we were he he lived on his own, and he's always been really independent, right? So he had his own place. So he called me over, and he would make the beats, and I would put like a piano loop on top of it. And this went on for a while and we actually we spent a lot of time together and it was really good bonding and it was an escape for me from my environment uh, but it, it, that had its own issues also but one day we ordered a pizza <laughs> and he said I asked him what do you want on it and he said anything but pork and so I said why not right and if you ask any non-Muslim, they consider pork delicious, right? So why would you not want pork? Right? Okay, it's haram. Right? I had a friend. He said, if I were to ever become Muslim, if I were to ever become religious, I would definitely become Muslim. But I love pork. <laughs> right? He used to call it meat candy. Right? <laughs> right? So my brother said, I don't like pork. I, I don't eat pork. So I asked him why. He said, because I'm Muslim. So that was that was that kind of floored me. I, I didn't know anything about Islam, even when I was in high school, tenth grade. The whole day, September eleventh, two thousand one. I'm in tenth grade. Not a single. We didn't have any class that day. Nothing. Everybody. We just went from one classroom to the next, just watching TV, right? watching what's going on. We thought it was an accident at first. Right, plane crashed into a building, and then the second one happened. We, even from even watching that, I still had no idea who Muslims were. Right, all I knew was like Aladdin, and and like, like the the crazy like toothless Arabs that they usually put on, on TV shows and stuff. I, I had no idea about Islam, so I asked him like, why? Why are you Muslim? What is Islam? Then for some reason, I don't know, maybe I always had a fiqh type mind. I used to, I asked him all the halal and haram questions from A to Z. Like, why can't you do this? Why can't you do this? Why is this haram? Why is this not? Right, so, and he, 
I think he kind of he, he had like this desire for da'wah at that time he still does like, and he used to always talk to his friends about Islam or, but so every time he would answer my question for instance why can't you drink this why can't you do that right he would answer it and then he would slip in something about the Bible right? and he would answer it and he would slip in something about Jesus right or different things that Islam believes and I think those days used to watch a lot of Ahmadidat videos and read a lot of like uh, interfaith like debate type books and stuff and he had all these books about like why the Bible is wrong and <laughs> it was interesting reads but right, so he would answer and so it wasn't until that point that all those questions I had when I was eight Right. Are we worshiping Jesus? Are we worshiping God? Are they the same? Are they different? Right. Everything started to become clear. Right. And I'm like 21 at this point. So as we're hanging out, I'm still just asking all kinds of questions. Right. And the Prophet said that the only cure to not knowing is to ask. Right. And so I would just ask and ask and ask. And he would give me some things to read. Right. And he gave me a small series of really small books about the prophets. So each book was one prophet. And at this time, I was still working at the Poha, but I had detached myself from a lot of my friends. Uh, I, I, did, I played piano by myself, mostly. I did music privately. I didn't really play with the band anymore. Uh, so... One day I just called them. I said, can I go to church with you on Friday? Right, so I knew it was on Friday, but I didn't know it wasn't called church. Right, and I still have a huge afro at this time. Right, cause, and that's important because the next part, right, we go to Jumu'ah. Right, and, and this is the Islamic center of South Jersey. This is where Mufti Niaz, Hanan, may Allah preserve him and keep him uh, in, in the service of deen. That he, that's where he is the imam at now. He was there was no imam at that time, right? So he brings me to the masjid, right? And then we we see I see like the the calligraphy and the nice design and everything, the carpet. And then we all just start heading to the bathroom. It was like a it's like straight line. You come in, you go to the bathroom. That's <laughs> I didn't really get it. So I'm just I'm literally just following, like no questions. So we get there. There's all kinds of sinks. A lot of things right and they're low like like waist high sinks so he's like just follow me so he starts washing his hands and his face right so I just followed him right foot in the sink everything right? and then he gives me this hat this little like kind of like mini dupi dopey right it's like elastic type hat and he gives it to me and I just looked at him like you really want me to put all of this hair in this little thing? Right, so that was my only non-compliance in regards to the whole, the whole introduction to the mosque. So we went into the actual prayer area, and it was the Juma khutbah. I didn't understand a thing. I know some people they like they went to the Juma and it was so inspiring, and all it was like Nuh alayhi salam radiallahu anhu. I had no idea, and the guy had a really heavy accent, right? But then we lined up for the prayer, right? So that that was interesting because the whole time I'm praying, like, my head directly facing my brother, watching what he's doing. 
Right, so it wasn't really like something inspirational in the message that I saw. It was nice. I saw. I like the calligraphy. I like the, the the sound of the Quran, like the prayer. Right, nothing really freaked me out. Right, but the next day, uh, me and my brother were at my father's house, just sitting in the computer room, and he just said to me, "He's like, so you want to become Muslim?" I said, "Okay, sure." Right, so. He just told me to repeat after him. I said the Shahada. Right. So it wasn't like epic car crash type like, conversion. Right. But like I meant it. I really like I, I liked Islam. I understood it. I understood like, what my brother was saying. I liked I, nothing freaked me out about the practices. Right? And so then my brother, he says, you have to fast. What do you mean? Like it's Ramadan. What are you talking about? <laughs> so I, I that was my second non-compliance was you know, maybe next year. I said maybe next year. It was mid-Ramadan, so I didn't fast. Right, and I remember the the next Ramadan. I actually fasted the day before just to see what it was like. And I remember it was like it was summer too. It was, it's a long fast, so I'm like, okay, I got four hours left. Let me watch two movies, two hours each, right? <laughs> sitting on the couch. Right, so, so after becoming Muslim, once again, I am not a person of moderation. Right? Whenever anything like I was passionate about, I, I would just go full force, right? sometimes to my detriment. But so I did that, right? and my brother, he didn't really have much right, to teach me much knowledge about the, what what needs to be done about prayer and all these things so we kind of both learned how to pray from google trend like from google uh, searches and printing out like i had this picture of a guy with his finger sticking and had like a, a dotted circle with an arrow meaning you have to spit it this way right so i learned from that transliteration right i would have a stack of papers with me every time I prayed. I had I started to read the Quran in English, and I used to I had this small notebook. I would any verse that that really struck a chord, I would write it down. Right, and so I learned to pray like that, and I completely detached from every friend that I ever had. I just went into like this isolation, and my brother didn't live with me. He lived about twenty minutes away. Or at least maybe 30 minutes away uh, closer to New Brunswick right and so I was by myself right? I had these books I had this prayer this stack of Google papers how to pray right and I had my piano that was my life right? I had the prayers the prayer time schedule just above my piano and I would pray go back to the piano play until the next prayer, pray, back to the piano, play, until the next prayer. And I just, I did that for a good two months straight. How many did I learn? Well, in retrospect, there was some productivity. I learned uh, a few of the Beethoven sonatas, right? if that's any, any bragging rights there. Right? But I came to a point, I just crashed. I couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> so... Right. kind of past the conversion part so this is beyond the answer but uh, 
so I, I crashed. I started to hang out with my friends before and it was kind of like, and th this is the problem with extremists, like extreme, this extreme idea that if you give everything with no moderation at all, that when you crash, you crash hard. Right. So when I, I crashed, I just completely left everything and went back to my friends and back to everything that I, that was previously going on that caused all this detriment and, and sadness and right, on, on stillness inside. Right. So, and that lasted for about 10 months. Right? It was a really big crash. What do you think caused that crash and what brought you back? I, I remember, I realized in retrospect that there was a few reasons. One, there was a lack of knowledge, right? Understanding of how the deen is embraced, right? And the Prophet said that in the Hadith deen mateen, that this deen is deep. Right? So, so delve into it lightly, gently, right? And no one tries to overpower the deen except that it overpowers them, right? So there was a lack of knowledge, and two, there was a lack of community. I had no one else. It was just me. So both of those led to that crash and for about 10 months or so. But then I remember there was a point like, again, I thought like, well, I can't be doing this again. It didn't work last time. So it's not going to work this time. So what did I, I started to, and this is in the time of MySpace, I think it was called right? before Facebook. I used to, I would search for Muslim friends in that area in South Jersey and I found nothing right? and I would search for for mosques and even the masjid that I went to that first time with my brother every time I would go to it right Islamic Center of South Jersey and really Imam Niaz revived it I mean Allah preserve him and bless him that every time I went there without fail it was locked right? not just the door but the gate so you couldn't even knock if you wanted to knock. It was completely barricaded right? every time. And I had, at this time, I'm like living with a friend of mine, right? one of the more moderate friends of mine. So it wasn't like a bad environment. Right? And every you know, I lived about a mile away from that mission. So I would go often and every time it would be locked. And, in red, and to come to find out later on that everybody who actually prayed there had their own key and they would call each other. And they wouldn't come to the prayer unless they knew for a fact someone else was coming. They would come in and then pray and then leave. Right, so um, I was searching on the internet for Muslim friends. Right? I found this one guy in Philadelphia. Right? And we met up. And he was a, I think it was an Indian guy because he took me to an Indian restaurant. And we had this ultra spicy curry. Right? That was difficult. Right? To, to go through, uh, but he took me to this masjid, this strange masjid, but I didn't know anything. Right? So he, he sat down, he, he was just showing me how like the Arabic letters look and what letters are what. That happened once, right? It was kind of weird, but it was, it was a refreshment that there is other Muslims in the world, right? So I kept trying to go back to the masjid, kept trying, kept trying, and one day it was open, one day. Around, it was a Sunday, uh, and they had this Arabic classes. And so I told my brother they have Arabic classes on Sundays. So he joined me actually, and we went there. And we're, I'm, I'm about 20, 
four at this time, right? And he's about a year old, year and a half older than me. And, and they put us in this class, Alif Bata. The teacher is 12. <laughs> so me and my brother are sitting there learning Arabic alphabet from a 12 year old, half our age at least. Right? And and again, I finally they gave me opportunity. I, I took all the letters, I wrote off flashcards. I would just sit in my car and just say, Alif Bata, Thajim while driving. Right? I memorized the alphabet. Right. And I remember later on, I, I was like, a, like a light bulb went off, and somebody told me that it's not Subhanallah, it's Subhanallah, and there's no P in Arabic. We're to that extent, we knew, we knew nothing, and so I kept going there for Sunday, and then one day there was a, a group of really big bearded, like perfectly like the ideal Muslim, right, sitting in a circle in the in the front of the masjid. So I sat there, and I just like kind of sat in the back, and I didn't I didn't get anything that they were saying. So then I asked the guy. Like, all I wanted to do was ask him a question, like, "Do they pray five times prayers here? Right? Do they pray all five prayers here?" Because all I know now is a Sunday, like it's kind of like church. Right? So I go to him, "Assalamu alaikum." Right? He just gives me this whole talk about how. Right, Allah is the greatest, and and you have to pray your prayers. And I'm like, as soon as you said about prayer, they said, yes, that's what I wanted to ask you about. Do they pray all five prayers here? He says, you know what, I'm not sure, but come here for Isha. Right. So I, I came back Sunday night, Isha. The door was open, nobody in the in the home rested. Right. But all the lights were on. Right. So I, I just started to pray. I did two rakats and some people came from the basement so during the prayer so I talked to them and they're like who are you and it was this other convert kid there it was Muhsin right? he had become Muslim in jail right? so I talked to them and they're like I said do you guys pray all five prayers here and I was so excited like there's humans right that are Muslim in the masjid right like a checklist of things I've been wanting. So they're like, yeah, just come for Fajr. And I lived a mile away. So Fajr is at 4.30. So I would come and I would sit on the doorstep. I would come early. And I would sit on the doorstep until the guy came and he would open the door and we would pray Fajr. Right? And he was an Arab guy from Tunisia. Right? Uh, so And this, this carried on for about a month. So one day as we're leaving after Fajr, he mentioned to me, he's like, yeah, I stopped by here for Asr and then to just to get something and then I went home. And I said, wait, 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 you can pray Asr here also? So he's like, yeah. And then I, and how many of that, they gave me a key, right? So I got a key to the masjid. Every Salat I was there, right? And then uh, my first Ramadan came, right? My first real Ramadan, the previous Ramadan, I kind of, ditched out on right. so that's that's kind of how I led up to to the masjid situation I'm a, bit, I'm a bit beyond your question no that's actually perfect because my next question builds on what you were just talking about can you talk further about the challenges when you first converted and the difficulties in finding a community and learning about Islam so yeah so that was the difficulty that 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 part where there's no community you have no one of the same the same 
drive and goal in life. So, and then, right, and then the second is like, there's no masjid. And so now we have a masjid. I know a few people, right? I'm starting to get to know a few people, right? Then I meet this brother and this is a few months before Ramadan, right? And he, he was an African-American convert, right? He was originally Jehovah's Witness. And Jehovah's Witness, they're like the, like the Christian Tablighi, Tablighi Jamaat. Right? They go door to door and they, they tell you about. I remember they came to my, my house, my father's house, while I was there. And they knocked on the door. And they said, excuse me, sir, can we talk to you about Jesus? He said, sure, one second. And he goes to me, he says, it's for you. <laughs> Because right, he knew that I was a bit religious at that time. And we just, I had like, I had watched an overdose of Ahmadidat videos, so I was ready. Right. And so I met this brother, he was originally Jehovah's Witness, then he converted to become a Rastafarian, right? And then he became Muslim. So, and he had like this style to him. Like he had the, the thobe that was exactly half shin length right he had the matching he had timberland boots like colorful timberland boots with a matching kufi so he had this like as they say in, in new jersey the swagger to him right and he had all these like cool little bottles of perfume like at the but they're like mixed right they're real fruity smelling right so he would come from work and he would come almost every day to pray asr so I, I, I started to talk to him and he was like me, like he was a convert and with a, no sense of moderation. Right? So he, he would tell me about, no, you got to do this. You got to do this. You got to learn this. Right. You got to. Right? And he started to introduce me to different books. Right? So one of them was the Fadal Al-Amal by Fadal Al-Amal. Right, and he, he used to go on Tablighi Jamaat right, in, in the hood of Philadelphia, right, in Germantown. Right. So him, him was, i never seen anybody like him, right? Because I've seen Arabs, I've seen like I mean, Southeast Asian people, right? But he's like a black American convert. Like, he's like pulled up, he has rims on his car. And like, it was kind of like dunya and akhira for me, like in one person. Right, so, and we would sit in the masjid and just read books. I remember one day we sat for about an hour just reading about the hellfire, right? and like and punishments of the grave. And and we, we had this book called the, it was a, a book of good deeds in English. And it had, it's like, it said, if you help your Muslim brother, you get 12 years of etikaf reward, right? And, and that's like all we need to hear for for a convert. Like twelve years? I had no idea what that means, but what you had to cap means, but that sounds like a lot of rewards. Right? But then it became it was kinda of weird, like like if he wanted me to go downstairs to get him something, he's like, Yo, you want twelve years reward? <laughs> right? Can you go get me a cup of water? <laughs> so it was kind of inverted a bit. Right. So from him I learned a lot of rules. I learned a lot of the halal haram, right? Some of it I learned before because I came to the masjid one time with shorts on. Oh, never again. Right? I got bashed out. <laughs> right? But from him, I learned most of like 
the basic halal haram. Right? I learned about halal food the night of Ramadan, the first tarawih. Right? All I thought was we can't eat pork. Right? Yeah. So that was a right, perfect timing, I guess. Right, so he took me to to Germantown to this uh, Tablik Marcus, like a headquarters of Tablik Jamaat. Right, and and he's like, we're going to stay the night. Right, they have a talk, they have dinner, then you stay the night, and you wake up for Fajr, and they have another talk. Right, so I went with him, and they had this like long table spread on the floor, right, and and they had these everybody. There was no shortage of beards there. Like people had very long beards, right? Very thick accents, but they were all like, I looked up to them, like, wow, that's cool. And you guys are like sheikh, You're like the sheikh, right? So, and then they give me this plate, right? It's a paper plate with white rice and this yellow liquidy substance on top, which I've come to know as dal, right? Dal Sharif, right? So. And I remember me and my my friend, neither of us could eat without making an absolute mess on our clothes because we were eating with our hands. One, the guy in front of me is like cleaning his plate with his finger and I'm st I still can't touch it. It's like on fire, hot. Right? So that was a really weird experience. And we slept there at night and there's always this person who's like dedicated to wake up for Tahajjud, puts his alarm on like on the loudest setting possible and never wakes up. Right, so the whole night I'm sleeping, there's alarms going off, people snoring. It was really strange, but it was cool. I, I loved it. Right, then in the morning there was a talk. And so that was kind of my first introduction. We went like three days, a few times, three days. And at that point, I, re I think I really needed that because right? it's kind of like a detachment from other preoccupations where you're spending three days in the masjid. Right, and I was, and I was always with my friend, right? But then one day, the a jamaat came to our masjid, right? And they're from Piscataway, and we would take them to go visit all the Muslims that we knew. And he, my friend, was from Camden, so he knew all these little halal shops, and right, so we took them everywhere, like, literally from from from. 10 o'clock before Dhuhr all the way till about Maghrib we were just going visiting and visiting and visiting right. and then at night like just the last night before they left the the Amir or the leader of that group uh, he gave this small talk they call Wapsi Wapsi talk right the go home speech right so and during that talk he said that he just started crying and he said that we haven't done anything right people are dying not knowing about Allah and his messenger Muslims not in the art detached from the masjid and we're sitting here sleeping and eating and we haven't done anything and he's crying I'm thinking like didn't we just go to like <laughs> didn't we make visits all day long yesterday and the day before I was kind of offended slightly but I understood what he what he meant Right. And he was really like sincere and in tears. Right. So I told him afterwards, like, because after that he said that we should all make intention to go four months as soon as possible. Right. 
So I, was, I said to him after, I said, wait, wait, you can't do that, right? From what I know, you have to go three days, then 40 days, then you can go four months. And he said, who told you that? No, our, our teachers encourage us to go four months as soon as possible. So me, it was like simultaneous. Me and my friend looked at each other. That's it. We have to go. Right. So, and at this time, to answer your question, one of the, another big issue that I had was like not knowing because my friend, he was, he followed the Tablig Jama'at. The, the other Tunisian guy was more of the rigid, kind of really conservative side, right? Where everything is haram until proven halal, right? So, and they would constantly fight, but not in my presence. But I knew that was I knew that they were kind of like bickering, arguing about me. And I would see that this person is telling me you have to pray like this, put your hands like this, and the other person is saying no, you can't do that. You have to do it like this. They're saying, like, be careful about certain people. They have these certain ideas. And it was really, like, disheartening because I did, I did, I trusted all of them. And I respected all of them. But they're all saying different things. And so I wanted to study. And I used to constantly ask, like, the, the administration of the masjid about going to study. And, and some would say, go to Medina University. And I would say, okay, how? And they wouldn't help me. Right? And the Egyptians would say, you have to go to Azhar, right? And I would say, okay, how do I do it? Nothing, right? So my friend said that, I told him I wanted to study. He said that, look, knowledge is like a five-course meal, right? It's like a beautiful dinner, right? And your heart is the plate. You can't put a beautiful dinner on a dirty plate, Right? Imagine if somebody made a beautiful dinner and served it to you on a dirty plate. Would you eat it? <laughs> right. So he was saying, like, you have to clean your heart first before going to study. I never heard anything like that. And he used to read a lot of Ghazali. He would quote it to me all the time. Right. So so the, the plan was that we drive to New York. And New York is like the headquarters of the northeast sec, uh, side of America uh, for the Tablik Jama'at. They just—it's a—it's a kind of like a dawah initiative where they go to Muslims and they call them to the masjid and they attach them to the uh, to the masjid and to certain acts that they should do every day. And it's, it was—it was started by an amazing scholar of India. And so we drove to New York right, to Corona Queens, uh, and and here it was like. Like all of those real big bearded guys are all combined in one room, right? All of them. Everybody had like the the, the thobes and the kameez and the right the leather socks with the zipper sticking sticking out, right? The big beards and the hats, right? Thick accents everywhere. Some converts in there also, right? Right. So and they had this talk. It was a huge masjid, right? They had this talk, and then they had food that was actually quite good, and then we spent the night there. And then they, in the morning, the, the morning after, they had what this what's called a mashura, right? this kind of like a meeting. So it was all these like really pious people, because the pious people all were white. Right? So they were all sitting in a circle, and there was this one old man in a wheelchair, and he wasn't uh, he 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 was obviously African American, but he was the leader. 
Uh, his name is Sheikh Lukman Abdul Ghani. May Allah have mercy on him. He passed away uh, a few years back. That so and my friend was pointing to me. He's like, "Oh, that's Molana Suhail, and that's this person." And and some of these people later on became my teachers. So I talked to. I went straight to Sheikh Lukman, and I said, "I want to go four months." And he's like, "Mashallah, Mashallah, right." And and then he kind of just like they didn't acknowledge what I said, and I said I want to go for months. I've already gone when I was nineteen. I I did a whole month and a half road trip by myself, right, with a with a complete stranger. I can do it, right. So I was like selling myself, right. And so he he said he kind of whispered to this other right, really pious looking guy. Who was actually really pious because he's my teacher, Malana Suhail Teli. May Allah reward him. Uh, and and then he turns to me and he says, "We're going for we're going to Bangladesh in January, and on the way we're stopping to make Umrah, right? To see to go to Mecca, Medina." Um, I was I was sold immediately. Right, I get to go to Mecca and Medina also. Right, so like the Bangladesh thing was a, okay, cool, another country. Right, but Mecca, Medina, that was it, and it was in January, right? So they they said okay, and they put me on a list or something, right? But now I have to sell it to my father, right? So my father was like, why would you ever want to go to Bangladesh? <laughs> like, and he did not get it, and and on top of that, right, after he reluctantly said okay, on top of that I said, can I borrow two thousand dollars, <laughs> right? It was about, yeah, about two thousand dollars for the trip, right? Because I had, I already had a bit of income, about five hundred a month, so I figured four months, five hundred a month, I'll have the two thousand by the time I come back. I'll just give it right back to you, right? So, and my father was never the person to close doors for me, right? and he always supported me anything, even though he didn't understand it. So he let me go, right? And that was an amazing experience and really kind of set the stage for me wanting to go study because the plan was when they said that I can go right I told them that I want to go to madrasa I want to study and I had heard about this madrasa in Queens called Darul Ulum so they said that uh, if you finish your four months then you can come we'll have we'll register you when you get back so so we went in January to Mecca right and we spent it was a layout it was like a transit visa so it was three days and we spent two days in mecca and one day in medina and it was really it was kind of interesting because i had nothing no idea how to tie an ihram and right <laughs> but alhamdulillah that was an amazing experience then we went to bangladesh uh and it was tough bangladesh was tough it was, it was a very poor poor area that we were in First, we went to this Ijtima. There's about five million people, and we stayed there for a while. And I had mosquito bites everywhere. Like, and I remember making wudu, and this Bengali Bengali person is just like staring at me. Like, Why do you have so many mosquito bites? <laughs> so that after that trip, we spent about we spent about. 25 days or about 
almost about a month or two in Bangladesh, about a month in India, and then one more month in New York, because Pakistan, that was the time when the war started in Pakistan, so I couldn't go. So those, then I was able to go to the madrasa. What was it like seeing Makkah and Medina for the first time? Inshallah. It was very surreal. It was surreal. I wish I knew more though, because I didn't know. Like, I was just following everything, what everybody else was telling me. Right? I didn't know Arabic. I didn't know like what to say, what to do. But I remember just, they told me, said that as soon as you see the Kaaba, don't blink. Right? Because, and your prayers are answered, right? As long, whatever you ask for is answered as long as you, uh, as long as it's the first time seeing the Kaaba. Right? So, and, the people that I was with, I was with actually Sheikh Luqman, he came and there's a few other African-American converts from New York and and there was one, uh, Adamin from Trenton, right, whose nephew actually became a student as well in Dar al-Ulum. Yeah, it was very interesting, right, amazing, absolutely amazing. And I, I remember while I was there, the first thing that came to my mind is like, I wish my brother could see this because he's the one that uh, introduced me to Islam and and my my entire story my entire life has always been influential people at the right time and just undeserved divine gifts of opportunities like and that was one of them that I got it like me I'm a convert I know nothing right I'm only like a year about a year into it and I'm already in Mecca. And there's people I've known a long time have been Muslim. I have never been to Mecca, even till today. So that that was an amazing trip. Medina was just, it was like picture perfect. You get all this huge, cool umbrella looking things. And right, and then right, to, to actually be there and see the group where the Prophet is buried. And I wish I understood more about the Prophet so after your trip, you started at Tharal Ulum in Queens. What was that like? Yeah, so I came back from uh, from Bangladesh, uh, from India, and we flew into New York. I still had one more month because it was a total of four months. I did three months over there, and then there's one more. But the, the person who picked me up at the airport was one of the brothers that was with me in Bangladesh because he had only gone for 40 days. Right, his Afghani brother named Tamim. He owns a restaurant there. Right, and there was another person named Molana Mikael Abdurrahman. Right, Molana Mikael, he's a Puerto Rican convert, right, from New York, and right, he's very New Yorker. Right? So they both picked me up, and immediately I kind of clicked with Molana Mikael because he's also he's Hispanic and convert, and he's a scholar. And it was amazing to me. And he's a, he's he's very knowledgeable, right? So I was talking to him that after I finished this last month, uh, this last uh, month of the Tablig Jamaat, that I wanted to join the madrasa and I wanted to memorize the Quran. So he said, "Don't memorize the Quran," right? And he didn't mean it like that, but he meant that because the Quran program was all like 12, 12 year olds, sixteen year olds, right? very rambunctious and I understood later why he did that right so he he asked me he said that the admission starts next month 
uh, sorry, yeah, one more month was Ramadan, right after Ramadan, that starts, right, so it started in uh, just after Ramadan, uh, either you can join this, you can join right away, right, and just kind of sit through the classes until the end of the year, and then start from, the be from scratch, or you can join from the beginning, so I said I'll join from the beginning of the year, because Ramadan was there, I wanted to kind of focus on Ramadan, right, so I joined, they, they actually drove us to the school, and we had to kind of walk through the rooms and stuff. All I remember is just kids running around, and there was a bunch of sleeping bags everywhere. Like, and they had like this shelf thing to put your sleeping bags in. So I didn't really. It's kind of like a lot blinds you to all the faults. Right? It's kind of like a dungeon-style masjid, like a basement of a, a, a queen's like a condo building. But it was really simple. Was a, right? So I joined, and I was. I was definitely the stranger. I was definitely the odd man out. Right? Everybody speaks Urdu or Bengali. Right? Uh, everybody's dressed a certain way. Right? Everybody already had like lots of knowledge, and I think that that Urdum, the way it's set up, it almost assumes that you've already done what's called Nazra, and right, like you've done your Nurani Khaida, and you've already learned a few things before. So I didn't know any of anything right? all the other students knew more than me and i'm 24 everybody else is like a teenager i'm the oldest one in the school right and i remember they they made me call the adan one day and i did it right? i had learned how to say it and my teacher that actually the principal of the school he said you sound like bilal i thought it was a compliment Right, <laughs> I really did like because Bilal is like the great Muazzin of the prophets of Allah, right? But he, what he was saying is like you're definitely not Arab, right? Your 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 tajweed is right, lacking. <laughs> so it, it was tough in the beginning, but they the first book that we did was called Ta'lim al Muta'allim. It was teaching the students the etiquettes of learning. It was a really cool title, right? And it was all about etiquette all about how to respect the teachers, respect the books, respect the tables, respect the pens. And, and I think and I kind of just dedicated myself to that part of it. Right? And then I didn't, like all the kids were really playful, but I was very serious about learning. And I would spend more time with the higher level kids than I would spend with my own classmates. Right? And which actually came, proved very beneficial because I started to learn things that I wasn't supposed to be able to know yet. And it helped me in my classes about Arabic and different things. So it, w it was tough in the beginning. And the hardest part of all time, to answer your question, uh, was how little importance the other students gave to their dean and to their studies. Right? And that was the biggest obstacle for me in the first uh, two, two years. Right? And, and I, I wouldn't say it was like an arrogance but I didn't understand it like that how could and and they're all like I'm a convert so they're asking me like about my previous life and about what's this like and what are, what is it like at a rock concert and right all these things and I was I just offended absolutely offended right? and I didn't understand it like how could you be so uh, so lax with this great gift that you have and I always use the example, like, I felt like I just escaped from a burning building 
right? And there's people outside saying, wow, that looks cool. Can I go in? Right? And that's how I felt with all of those. Right? But I, di I didn't, at that time, I didn't have the tools to perceive what was actually going on in the bigger picture. The fact that they, as born Muslims, that, that they didn't really see what they had. They didn't really understand what they had. And because of the cultural divide between them and their parents, right, the parents are from wherever they're from, and these kids are born and raised and growing up in New York City. Right, There's a huge gap between the two. Right? And a lot of them are forced to be there. I didn't see that in, in the beginning. Right? I just didn't get it. I assumed like all born Muslims were like guaranteed pious and really dedicated it wasn't that way. That was a big problem for me. And, but Milana Mikael helped a lot with that. How did you find out about Tara Mustafa and then eventually end up studying there? Yeah, so I spent about four years in Dara Odum. Around my third year, right, things started to kind of deteriorate a bit. The first year that I went there, there was this really pious man. He wasn't a teacher. But he was he was considered like a guidance counselor. But he was an amazing person. His name is Malana Yajaz. They would call him Hazraji, right? which apparently is like some term of respect right? in uh, Urdu language. So I didn't I couldn't speak to him because I didn't know Urdu. But I had a friend, uh, Abdullah Sayyid. Uh, he he was very close, and he's actually from India. But he's he spent most of his childhood in in America, so he was kind of he understood my culture because he was kind of like a he changed his life and dedicated and went back to Dean after having been through the the torment of the dunya. So he was very close with Hazraji Malana Yajaz. So I would go with him sometimes to to visit him, and he was just and his his presence in that school kept everybody at a level of uh, consciousness to Allah and honor for the deen. And, uh, but he, he ended up having a heart attack, right? And he got really sick. He, he survived the heart attack and he's still alive today. Alhamdulillah, keep him in good health and, and preserve him. But I, we, we would go and visit him in the hospital, but after that he left. Right. So a after he left, there was a slow deterioration about of the the spiritual aspect of all of the students and, and just the environment in general. So it was around the third year that I, everything just became really hard for me to handle inwardly. Because as I mentioned before, when I first became Muslim, it was a very spiritual thing. Right? And then as you learn the, the law, right, the halal and the haram and the fiqh and the rules, Right? If you do not hold, uphold that spiritual side, right, it becomes very easy to, to look at people with a checklist of rules. Are they following it or not? Right? And kind of grading people's piety according to the outward, right? according to how they dress, how long their beard is, or what rules they're following, what rules they're not following. Right? So I started to become like that. And it, everything became very dry, very law-based. And I remember... We had a class about the different, uh, uh, it was called the differences of the Ummah, right? different Muslim sects, and they would talk about like Shia and 
and this and Caldianis and and it came to a point where there I was kind of just like bashing people out all day long right and one of the groups was uh, what they call Ahl al-Hadith right? some some call them right? they're self-named Salafi right and I remember just like after hearing so much of like this negativity about how they're like this and they're like this and they're like this and I understand why right? because one wants to defend the purity of the deen right? but the way that it was done is the exact way that they do it Right, and I didn't. I I had already been exposed to that, and I didn't like it. It was just not prophetic. It was really, it was it was ugly. Right? We went to. I took a friend of mine to the masjid, and I said "Salam alaikum," and they wouldn't even reply until we answered their questions properly. Right? He's like, "What? What's your methodology?" Right? So I I knew what he wanted. I answered the way he wanted me to answer. Then he goes to my friend. He has no idea who he is. He goes to my friend and says, "Why are you wearing the clothes of the kufar?" And he's wearing jeans. He says, Allah, bro, you can't come to Meshit like that. I, I knew how they were, and now I'm seeing that same thing, right, in in, oppo- in opposition to them. So I, I said, I, I just something overtook me. I'm usually, I, I was a person of great etiquette in front of teachers and manners. and But this time I just, I just said, why don't we just make two rakats and make dua for them? Right? And then everybody just kind of, like the record stopped. <laughs> Everybody just kind of looked at me, and I think at that that moment it was kind of like my heart wasn't there anymore, right? So that time coincided with I had classes on on the private classes on Sundays right, in New Jersey with Mulana Abdurrahman Ahmed, right, who is the who was the Imam of the Masjid in Trenton, right? And while I was there, I met a brother whose name is Abdul Qadir Wizwal. Right? Abdul Qadir Wizwal is an American convert, right? White, white as could be, white guy, right? Like the picture perfect American guy. Right? It took me a long time to realize that when people ask you that if you're uh, where you're from and you say American, right? When you say American, they think white people. Right? Many people, where are you from? I'm from America. No, really, where are you from? <laughs> right? So he was the picture perfect white guy. Right? So he he invited me to his house, right? And we had like coffee and he started talking to me about these people in the desert in Yemen and I'm, I'm listening and he just started talking about them and, and the way that he was saying it was just out of so much sincerity and passion like like he's he's speaking as if he saw it like directly himself and he's been there so and he would just keep telling me these stories and like for some reason I had looked forward to Sundays because every Sunday I would come and, and see him Right? And then sometimes he would do like these little gatherings in his house, which later on I found out are called hadra, right? hadras. Right? And and for me, being in from the Dara Udum type school, right, I knew for a fact I'm breaking all the rules. Right, this guy's got like incense burning. There's got to be some like dislike in that in the rollings. Right, he's got drums. Oh, definitely not, right? And then he's like singing these songs. Like, man, it's like a checklist of things I probably shouldn't be doing. But I, 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 I trusted him, right? And I, I was kind of like still in that, met- met- that mentality from the school. Like, to no fault of their own. It was my fault right? that they were more spiritually prepared to, to go into that than I was, right? But he would tell me about these people. And then... 
I come to find out he used to go on Tablig Jamal. He used to be Hanafi and he became Shafi. His wife is Bangladesh, from Bangladesh. He got married in Bangladesh. So he, he knows fluent Urdu. Right? So he went through, he's a convert. He went through the whole, that, that whole uh, kind of men, men, mentality right? of that, that type of school. Right? And he came out the other side like this. Right, so now he's like this, right? Right. But at the whole time he's speaking respectfully about that. Right. He's talking great about the Tablik Jaman, about the scholars, and then he's just adding his own experiences. So I, I, I went every week with him. Right? And he gave me this small little book called the Khulasa, right? which is a compilation of, of uh, morning and evening du'as. Right? He told me that and he bookmarked everything that I should read every day. Right, so that last year of, of Dara'udum, right, this is the end of my third year, right? I would read every day the Khulat, the word Latif in the morning and, and at night, right? And the du'as in between, right? And I would I would be singing like Qad Kafani and Murabbi and right, yeah, Al Ayyallah bin at night during revision time instead of revising. Because I, I'm not a person of moderation, never was, right? So and then he said that there's a, a retreat, right? And he was always telling me about Sheikh Yahya Rodas, Sheikh Yahya Rodas, you have to meet Sheikh Yahya. Right, so then the, the retreat was in, in during the break of my school, but it kind of overlapped because there's Dakhya that is, there's, you have to sign up for the next year and you kind of get in trouble if you don't, right? So I kind of, as the good student, the ideal student, teachers loved me. <laughs> I was very compliant and respectful. Uh, alhamdulillah. So, so they let me come late. So I went to the retreat. Right? I met Sheikh Yahya. Right? And Mulana Abdurrahman was actually there. He was one of the speakers. And Imam Tahir Anwar was a speaker. Right? Imam Jihad Brown, Sheikh Muhammad Mendez were there. Right? And I went. And they actually, somebody paid for me because I didn't have any money to pay for it. Dr. Zafar, he paid for me. Uh, so I met Sheikh Yahya. And I, I wanted to make mashwara with him. I wanted to go study in Tirim, right? But I was I always made mashwara. I always took advice. So I talked to him and I said that I'm studying in Dar al but I really want to go to Tirim. What should I do? And he said he told me about his time in Mauritania. And he said that when he as when he became Muslim it was a very spiritual thing. Right? But when he went to Mauritania that they're very knowledge driven. Right. But there are awliya, they're already spiritually inclined, but they're very knowledge driven. So he, he, and he said that one day he woke up and just the sun was so hot and blistering and he's like, he knew he had to go. So he, he, he ended up going to, to Tirim and he told me, he's like, go, go to Tirim. Right. So, but I had one, I, I had, I had to figure out a way to get from Dar al to Tirim without burning any bridges. Because I don't like conflict, right? Personality-wise, I don't like conflict, right? So that was a mission. That whole year, my heart was already in Tirim, right? My revision was lacking because of my nighttime uh, hadras and qasidas in the madrasa, talking to the other students about Imam Haddad, reading lives of, uh, reading Imams of the Valley, right? So 
I talked to one of the younger teachers who actually just graduated before me. He he did teach us a little bit, right? How how to go about it, and he and because I also at that time I wanted to get married, and I told my teachers multiple times, and he said to just keep pushing that point, right? Because they, if you tell them this or you tell them that, they won't let you go, right? And, and like if you tell them, oh, it's a spiritual thing, they'll they'll do something, but they won't let you go, right? But if you tell them that you need to get married, there's not much they can do for you. Because right? I wanted to continue to study and get married, so that was my that was my my selling point. I want to continue study and I want to get married, and there's no way I can continue to study and afford to live somewhere here in, in New York, right, without a job, right. But if I go to Yemen, it's really cheap. If I get somebody to sponsor me, I can be married and stay there. So uh, it, it worked. Right? They reluctantly let me go. Few few of them gave me advices: be careful. They do the molies and stuff like that over there. And, Right, and they they let me go. A few of my teachers were very before it, and they, they said, "No, go, go now." <laughs> right, and so I I I talked to some of the committee members in the masjid, and they they were they agreed to sponsor me. Right? So I went through the process, sending money orders to Yemen, and it's kind of a hassle, but and but it worked out well. I got accepted. Everything went well. Right? I'm about to leave in one week's time. The masjid says that, sorry, we rethought our position and we feel that it's not proper that we send money monthly to Yemen in these times, right? Because it was kind of the conflict was kind of boiling over there in Yemen, in North Yemen. So I told uh, my teacher, Sheikh Hassan Abunar, was he's actually a Palestinian and he said just I asked him about Tareem and he said that in Tareem is all good right go there and don't look for anyone else so any teacher that said something I would tell Sheikh Hassan said this and they all respect the Sheikh so right so I told him like I can't go I don't have any no one to sponsor me he said just go there and call me when you get there right so I went my father again, may Allah, <laughs> may Allah bless him. He didn't understand, right? And then on top of that, I don't have a visa. It hasn't come in yet. I'm in the airport. I'm checking in, and I have no visa. <laughs> right? So I'm flying to to Doha, I think first, and then to a different flight to Yemen, Yemeniya. So my Yemen visa has not come in yet. So he's like, "What are you?" And then as we start walking away toward the checkpoint, the email came in, and there's the visa. So I told him, like, here, here. so he's like, okay, come, right? call me when you get there. Right? So I went there, mashallah, and it, it, for, we went first for the daura for 40 days with the intention to stay on for, for studies. What were your first impressions of Thareem, and can you talk a little bit about some of your teachers while you were there and how they influenced you? Mashallah. So... When I got to Tadim, it was, it was during the Dawra, and we had got there just after Fajr, so it wasn't that hot. I remember getting off the plane, and it was very dry, just dusty everywhere, mountains, just flat land with mountains in the distance. And the Sayyidun Airport, right, you take one step in, and you're already out the other door. Right? It's, the really, it's the tiniest airport. The guy took my my passport. 
right, and didn't give it back. So that was, right. but there are some of the students from Dar Mustafa there uh, receiving us. One of them, and the one who received us was uh, Sheikh uh, Amin Buxton right, and Sheikh Abdul Qadir Nielsen. Right, may Allah reward them. They're senior students. Uh, and so we went straight to the hotel. So the daughter students, they at first few days they stayed in a hotel until they had the uh, the accommodation set up. And so we took and we rested until about Dhuhr. So around Dhuhr time, we walked to the masjid, and I remember walking outside at Dhuhr time in the desert. It, for a moment, I just couldn't breathe. It was so hot. Right? But how many of you get used to things? Right? So that night. Right, we went to the masjid, we saw Dara Mustafa, mashallah. Just the way that it's set up is just beautiful and really welcoming for the soul. Right. But and I'm just looking for Habib Omar, right? Because I had a CD of Habib Omar teaching, right? A book. That's all I had. Right? I knew my Arabic was quite good from Dara Ulum. Right. Uh, the only one I really the only two Habibs I really knew about was Habib uh, Ali Jifri. Right, who did some talks with Hamza, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, who I spent hours and hours watching his videos. Right, and then I knew Habib Omar. That was it. Right. And so I'm just looking, where is Habib Omar? Sorry. So that night there was, uh, it's called the Jalsith name, the Monday Night Gathering, which is a tafsir class. And we were sitting there, and it's out in the courtyard behind Dara Mustafa. So then right, everybody just starts standing up. <laughs> and I don't know what's going on, so I stand up also. I'm, I'm that kind of person, just like, okay, let's do it. So I stood up, and then everybody, like, all the focus just turned one direction to this, like, small little entourage walking up, right? And then it was Habib Omar, and it was just majestic, right, to see him. And he was, the whole time, he's going like this, like, like using his hands to point, like, sit down, sit down, sit down. Right? He didn't want people to stand for him. And... From that, and then from there, it was just my, I was sold, right? Just looking at these types of people, right? So the, the teachers that had the biggest influence on me, obviously, first and foremost is Habib Omar. Right? Habib Omar, is, I found him to be prophetic in every single way. Right? And I remember studying Riyad al-Salihin in Darul Ulum, but it wasn't until I saw Habib Omar that I understood large portion of those hadith oh that's why he does this that's why he does this that's why he everything he does is either sunnah or with intentions right of worship right and every sunnah he does right even to the extent of where his ring is when he prays the salah right and i remember just noticing all of that and i think that preparation from dara Adam, right, allowed me to benefit more from heavy Omar because I, I already knew arabic the dotas a lot of the dotas students didn't uh the Tirimi slang was a bit tough, though. <laughs> and they would sometimes talk without nahu, with no grammar. And I remember this hit me in my, like, came to my heart. It's like, they're just, it's just another way of them telling me it has nothing to do with that word. It's not about the grammar. It's about Allah. But whenever they want to, they can talk fusha. So Habib Omar, right, was and still is right, the pinnacle change of my life, right? Second was Sheikh Omar Hussein al-Khatib, the author of Prophetic Guidance. And I spent a, a great portion with him because when I went to Habib Omar to ask what I should study, being a Hanafi, right, 
and in a Shafi'i school, so they kind of catered for me. Uh, he would always say, "Go to Sheikh Omar," and Sheikh Omar would sit with me for for some, sometimes for for an extended period of time, and write out for me my schedule, and I would always go back to him for advice. And I studied extensively with him, Hamida. And then after that, after Dara Mustafa actually spent a week straight with him in Singapore as his translator, mashallah. And, and then every Habib was just a no, notable person. Right? Even my taxi driver studied 10, 12 years in the rebelt. Right? And I remember meeting Habib Kazim, right? Habib Ali Abu Bakr, right? who they, everybody knows him as right? the one who smiles a lot. Right and and Habib Muhammad Aydaruz and some of them were Jalali, they're majestic, and some of them were just pure beauty. Right, they're all beautiful, but some of them had right, a preponderance of the one or the other. Inshallah. You have a very unique wedding story. Can you talk a little bit about how you and Estada Halima were brought together? So I'm 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 trying not to be the longest of your. No. Your interviews. <laughs> I'm honored to be on a. I don't deserve to be on a list of right, Sheikh Faraz and Stad Amjad and Dr. Shadi and Mufti Niaz, but Alhamdulillah. So, uh, actually, yes, my my wife, she studied extensively longer than me in Dara Dara in in Tadim. She was there about uh, I think three years or so before I even got there. Right. So when I got there, I first stayed in Dar Mustafa. Right? So after the Dawra, for the Dawra, we stayed outside. And we had like fried chicken and pizza and french fries. They really catered to the Westerners because we're all what they call mutadalli'in. Right? We're all spoiled. Right? And the Arabs knew that. So, right? uh, But after that, we moved. Like whoever stayed had to move into Dar Mustafa. And that, that was tough. And so I lived in Dara Mustafa for a while, but I, I, ever since I was young, I'm really sensitive to the cold, right? So, uh, and in the winter, it gets quite cold and there's no roof, right? Because that never rains, so they have open ceiling concepts everywhere. <laughs> so I, I got to move out to my own place. And so, I, as, since I was outside, I, I had met a friend his name is Hassan Petros. He's actually a teacher now at Maqasid. Sheikh Mustad Hassan Petros. And I would actually do private classes with him. Uh, and his his uh, wife was actually Abdul Qadir Wizwal's daughter. Right? So Abdul Qadir was one of the main influences of me going to Tadim. So I just offhandedly just, asked, just mentioned to Hassan, Ustad Hassan, Sheikh Hassan, that uh, I wanted to get married because right? even from Dar al-Ulum days, that was that was part. It wasn't like I don't want to be that guy like whoever's hijra is for is for a woman to get married or for dunya to get it. It wasn't for that. Like I was there for studies, but so I told them, and then I guess he told his wife, right? And his wife is actually one of the closest friends of my now wife, Sada Halima. Right, so, so I think the word spread to her, right? And I remember one day Hassan just like, that Hassan, he, he turned to me, he, he took a picture of me, 
right? And apparently that picture reached my future wife, and, and she said she didn't like it. That was a bad picture, right? <laughs> right? She's probably embarrassed now, but she didn't like that picture. She told me she called her mom and said, Mom, he's not nice. <laughs> he doesn't look good, right? So, Alhamdulillah, Allah veiled her from all my faults, right? So, we kind of went through those two, right? So, they were kind of like the the, the matchmaking counselors, right? So, it started with like sharing pictures first, as, as bad as that sounded just now, right? <laughs> Uh, then it went into passing like letters for just basic questions, right? Like, roles in life and what we're looking for for the spouse. Right? Then we had actual meeting, right? Uh, with, with both of them were there, right? and, and that went well. So she she went ahead and talked to her parents, and right? so then her parents after I think about a couple months or so of that. Her parents, her father wanted to come meet me because there's nothing that's going to happen until then, right? So her father came and 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 uh, her mother actually came too and surprised my wife, Sada Halima, right? and they spent I think about a week in Tirim. So during that week, I kind of got to meet his, her parents and they met me, they talked, right? I tried my best to be hospitable. I didn't know much about that. Just being a student and like it's kind of like a full, a long-term bachelor-style life where like, everybody cooks for you. And so I didn't really. I just bought food from the store and said, "Here you go. I'm a good host." Right. So they kind of were patient with me. Right? We showed them around Tadim. We took them to Nabi Hood and all the different right, sites to see. Uh, and then. One day, my father-in-law, because right, he speaks Malay, right, and one of the assistants of Habib Omar also speaks Malay, is that Mahdi, right? He's actually Indonesian. So my father-in-law set up his own meeting with Habib Omar, which is like a miracle because people who, who are actually there full-time right, have, have some difficulty getting to Habib Omar directly. Uh, so he set up his own meeting. And then he 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 met with Habib Omar, and he asked Habib Omar about whether or not he should marry his daughter to this guy, this American convert, right? And Habib said tonight at nine thirty, <laughs> right? And and so my father-in-law he he came to the hotel. We we're all there, and he he told us. Uh, and this is about 5.30, so we, and about maybe 6.30. So we have about three hours until the actual nikah. Right? Because later on, I realized that Habib Umar actually left for Umrah the next day. Right? So everybody ran their own directions to go get ready and then meet up again at Habib Umar's house right, to do the nikah. And it, it was simple, but it was amazing. Just the fact that Habib Umar was there. And then like the way they do it in Sidim is like... Uh, I, I shook my father-in-law's hand. We held hands, and then Habib Omar put his hand over our hands, and he's just like telling us what to repeat. And it was really just like ultra intimidating, and awe-inspiring. Like, the fact that so <laughs> Habib Allah made things easy. Said, I mean, Buxton was right there on my side. Sheikh Musab, uh, Ben Found, and many people who I actually grew up very 
had a great camaraderie with from the Westerners. And so from the, I'm sure if my wife were to tell the story, it would have a lot more vantage points. <laughs> Inshallah, I'll get her story on another episode. How did you get involved in the Tao work in Mexico after leaving Tarim and eventually becoming a teacher in Toronto with Seekers Guidance? Yeah, so uh, we got married shortly after I was there. So we stayed for another three years, right? And we lived together outside. Uh, she trans- transitioned from Dar Zahra to living outside. I was already living outside just for a, f- a few months before that. Right, so we continued our studies, right? Uh, Alhamdulillah, by the blessing of Allah, we ended up doing Qur'an. Both of us ended up focusing on Qur'an for a solid year, uh, along with other classes. And then we, So, at the end of the third year, uh, my father kind of, like, the war in the north started to get worse, right? The airports closed down, right? And each, between each year, we had a break in Ramadan, and the first year we went to Singapore, Right, uh, because we had recently got married and her extended family didn't uh, get a chance to meet me so we went to Singapore the year after that we went to America she got to meet my family right? Uh, so we had been taking small breaks in between but because the airport was closed we had to drive in from Oman right? 14 hour bus, 16 hour bus one time it was 20 something hours because the air conditioner broke and there was a flood in the road and all kinds of interesting things. I mean, don't, we didn't even, even mention about the camel falling on the windshield. I mean, that's another well, another session. <laughs> right, so camels got up and ran away. So the camel's okay. Right, so uh, around the time when the war started getting worse, my father expressed, but without without saying like any command or anything, he said he doesn't like me to be in there. Right. Right. And so I, I actually, I went to Habib Omar for that last, that third year, as I would do every year to talk about what should I cover this year. And I just kind of mentioned that my father didn't, he was not so happy with me being here. So Habib said, do this, do this, do this. Then trust in Allah, meaning go home. Right. So I was a bit like, uh oh. I was planning to be there for at least five years. So I said to Habib, can, can I have at least an extra six months right, to finish uh, the last few things that I needed to finish? And he said that if you ask your father and he says yes, then you can stay. Right? And I, met, I told my father that my teacher said this, that, he's, uh, that you're, I told him that you're concerned about me being here. He said that to, to leave at the end of the year because of that. And I asked him for permission to stay six months. He said that if you give permission, then I can stay. So my father, he texts me back. He says that you can stay an extra six months. And by the way, I love your teacher. <laughs> right, just the respect that Habib gives to 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 the rights of the parent. And right, so that 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 sec that last six months ended just before January two thousand eighteen. So December two thousand seventeen. So we went to Singapore. Uh, and we're fresh out of Yemen, right? we don't really have anything, right? to, so Alhamdulillah Allah made things very easy, we stayed at our in-laws house, uh, we started to do classes in Singapore and just private classes about Arabic and other things, right? and it was well, well received, 
right? But the problem is, and then we started to do her visa process for the U.S., right? Uh, which is still ongoing <laughs> many years later, right? So, but the problem is Americans only get three months, right? And we tried to apply for a visa for her to go to America again, and it was denied, right? Because now Mr. Trump is in the... In, so Allah is the, the, the doer of all things. So, so I spent three months, and then we kind of slipped out to Malaysia and went back. Three months and slipped out to Malaysia. Right? But as I'm there, and we were there, I was there for about a year total. Right? But as we were there, Habib after Habib from Tareem would come to do classes in, uh, in Singapore. And alhamdulillah, it was a blessing of Allah that I ended up being the translator for almost all of them. Right, first Habib Hashim bin Yahya came, right, unexpectedly. So I landed. Two days later, they said you have to translate. <laughs> so and I met some Singaporeans there in Tareem beforehand, so I knew some people. So I translated for him for about two weeks. It was amazing. Right then, Sheikh Omar Hussein Khatib came for about a week. Then Habib Muhammad Aydrouz came. Then Habib Hussein and Haddar, and then and so on and so on. Right and Habib Abdullah Al Mahdar all these people started to come so but then after a year the people at the border like every three months you go come to malaysia and come back in right and the guy was muslim and it was eid so he's like i should just send you home i <laughs> like my my job dictates that i should send you home right now so he he said that i'll let you go three more months right? so that was how i got to a year but then after i had to go home so I went for about two months and we came back to Singapore and we're just thinking like, what should we do? Because I can't stay here that long and you can't come to America. So we, I, met, I had met in Tareem a man named Sheikh Mudar, Abdul Ghani, uh, who's a Syrian man uh, and who had migrated to Mexico. And he was like a one-man show just doing da'wah in Mexico for about 10 years. And he had brought two Mexican students to Tareem to study. So I remember meeting him and having the intention to go to Mexico for da'wah and these things. Right? So at, at that point, we were I was kind of messaging all the friends that I had around the world about like, is there any teaching opportunities or da'wah opportunities there that would come through? I messaged brother in England. He said, marhaba, but it's difficult here, Australia. Then I messaged Ustad Amjad. Right, so Ustad Amjad, he said, I might have something for you. Let me get back to you. Right, so like a few weeks went past, right? I didn't hear anything. So we, we kind of dedicated ourselves to the Mexico trip. We raised money, alhamdulillah, and then whatever was left of the money we raised, we gave to the community. So we went to Mexico for two months. It was an amazing experience. It's a lot of work that needs to be done. They need help, and it doesn't have to be like, the like muftis and scholars that go it, it needs to just be sincere people especially specific especially if they can speak spanish All right so we went there for two months there's a lot of arab refugees we had classes for uh, for yemeni yeah refugees and so uh, we went to the villages to give dawah to some of the non-muslims right so during that time in mexico i got a call just before going to mexico from the u.s i got a call from sheikh faraz on facebook I'm like, maybe he got the wrong number, <laughs> right? Because I think before, like a few days before that, it was a friend request. I'm like, 
cool. I just kind of wanted to screenshot it. So like, right. And then he he called, and I talked to him, and he he was he he asked if I can. Uh, we talked about com me coming up there just a few days before going to Mexico, and we set it up, and they set it up for me that we came, and they had us do the coffee and connections class. I think uh, it was at the Jamia Masjid in Mississauga, Cooper's Mosque. It was before they had this place set up. So, the so we did that. Alhamdulillah, it was a blessing to meet Sheikh Raz and to meet the people here, and then we we went to Mexico two months. So during that trip of Mexico, uh, Sheikh Raz called again, right, and, and kind of offered us the position here to come here, and it's an honor, and again one of those undeserved opportunities from Allah and those influential people. Uh, so after Mexico, we flew actually we flew into Toronto straight from Mexico City. And so alhamdulillah and i think was that amjad when when i he did get that text i think he was already planning his transition and i didn't think i think he understood that there was like, someone needs to take his spot even though you know i can't fill his shoes and, but it was an absolute it was, it was an absolute honor we kind of switched spots right because he went to america and i went to canada <laughs> what was it like moving to toronto do you like it here i i like canada I actually, I actually love it a lot. I, I'm still wondering why people are still in America. Like, no offense to the Americans listening, right? But where I'm from in America, halal food is not easy. Like, we used to drive to Philadelphia. I remember some of the like the the uh, Southeast Asian communities would actually drive to like North Pennsylvania, right? For, where there's like Mormons and Dutch people who who like graze cattle and. Right? And they would do their own hand slaughter and just put it in a deep freezer at home for for the rest of the year, right? It was not easy. Right? And Singapore, everything is halal, like KFC, McDonald's, everything. So, so I think this is like here, there's uh, huge communities of lots of scholars, lots of masjids, right? And they're not locked, alhamdulillah, right? And you have like halal food is there, right? Driving down the street, it looks like like we're in a Muslim country. Just, just more Muslims than there are non-Muslims in some communities. So I, I think it's a great blessing. And then plus to be able to have the opportunity to sit at the feet of Sheikh Faraz. He calls me Sheikh Yusuf, but I consider him my teacher. To, to do some deeper Hanafi fiqh with him and Aqidah and some deeper studies to continue my studies as well. It's just an absolute blessing. Last question. Can you talk a little bit about the need for Spanish speakers in Dawa work um, in Mexico, as you mentioned, but also in the U.S.? So when I was young, I spoke Spanish. When I was really young, because I lived with my mother and my grandmother, and they were speaking Spanish. And Spanish, Costa Rican specifically, like, I would just come up to them, like, why are you arguing? We're not arguing. We're talking about, like, the weather. <laughs> like, they just speak loud and really passionate. And so I knew, I knew a bit of Spanish when I was young, but I forgot it like, almost completely. And so when we were in Mexico, alhamdulillah, we did almost, uh, we did every day two hours of classes at a, at a Spanish school there, every day, five days a week for the whole two months that we were there. So that really kind of like um, brought back a lot of what I used to know. Right? I, I feel that if I were to, if I continue to practice more, I can get a, a quick hold on Spanish. But 
yeah, it, my Spanish is not good enough right now to really be any any bit of uh, benefit to anyone, <laughs> except for like buying milk at the store or something. Right, but just from being in Mexico, there is a huge, huge need as far as if the Spanish-speaking Muslims to really take to fill that gap, right? And there is a very a huge lack of access to Islamic texts in Spanish. There's a lack of access to uh, true scholarship, and, and and which combines the outward and inward knowledges of the Dean. Right in the Spanish language, mashallah, there's a lot of Turkish people, uh, Turkish organizations that have been doing a lot of translations in Spanish and, and of their own books, uh, which is beneficial, for sure. Uh, but there's a lot to be done, a lot to be done, and Span Islam is spreading very quickly there, and especially even in regards to the U.S. I mean, the, the southern states of U.S. like Texas and uh, and. New Mexico, all these places. There's so many Latin communities, so many Hispanic communities, that that are becoming Muslim. And if we don't have something prepared for them, then then we might they might end up slipping away the way that I almost slipped away, and because of a lack of community and a lack of access to scholars. And thank you, Jazakallah Thank you so much for sharing your story. All the stories included in your story. <laughs> My sub stories. Uh, may Allah bless this podcast and make it a means of a beacon of light for many people because it's through the stories of other people that sometimes are, are, we find the answers to our own story, which is an ongoing story. That And, and this is the idea that the Prophet, Allah tells the stories in the Quran to the prophets. I mean, and I hope that Allah uses this and makes it grow and makes it spread and gives much benefits. And I just advise you have just have high hopes and high intentions, inshallah, that Allah spread by this much nur, much light, inshallah.